Hello everyone, welcome back. Did you know July of every year is Disability Pride Month? 32 years ago, on July 26th, the American with Disability Act was signed into law and since then, discrimination against people with disability was prohibited and more and more people with disabilities found advocacy and support from their society. To celebrate this important month in the history of disabled rights, we are honored to have a very special guest with us today, Mr. Gossage, the director of the Ann Arbor Center for Independent Living. Mr. Gossage will share with us the history of the independent living movement, its driving philosophy, and what it takes for the people with disabilities to be independent. Before we start, we would love to extend our gratitude to the Fifth Avenue Studios in Ann Arbor Public Library, who helped us to get in contact with Mr. Gossage and many wonderful guest interviewees in the future episode. Uh, my name is Alex Gossage. I'm the executive director for the Ann Arbor Center for Independent Living. We are a community-based organization located here in Ann Arbor, but also working in Livingston and uh, Monroe counties, as well as the rest of Washtenaw County, serving people with disabilities. Um, I myself am a person with a disability, and uh, maybe I can start there. Uh, so we had no idea what independent living was until we watched the documentary that you suggested, uh, Crib Camp. And so I assume that a lot of other people wouldn't know what it is either. So could you briefly like describe what independent living is? Sure, yeah. It, it definitely is a term that I think has uh, changed and, and been co-opted in many ways in many different uh, organizations and things. I'm glad you had the opportunities to watch Crip Camp um, because I, I do think that's a great place uh, to start when folks are thinking about disability rights in, in the United States as well as uh, independent living. Um, really, the independent living movement, um, you can think about it as uh, an offshoot of uh, the civil rights movements, the women's rights movements that were going on in the 60s. And um, that is really when independent living movement started was uh, in the 60s. And it's, uh, it's about being able to realize your own personal freedom, make choices for yourself, and uh, the opportunity and ability to live in the community. Um, and knowing that those things are basic civil rights that we're all entitled to, regardless of whether or not um, we have disabilities. So how and when did it start? Um, so when folks look at, are looking at the independent living movement starting, it started in the 1960s with a group of students in, uh, at, who went to UC Berkeley. Um, you have to remember back in, in, at, that, at that point in our history, uh, things like curb cuts uh, didn't exist. Uh, people with disabilities in, in all too many cases were living in these large uh, institutions who were not taking care of people. People with disabilities were really uh, oftentimes, I think, pushed to the side or hidden from uh, the greater community at large. As far as these students go, uh, kind of the person that we talk about as the, the father of the independent living movement, um, or, and definitely the father of Centers for Independent Living, his name is Ed Roberts. He was a student at UC Berkeley at the time. He was a polio survivor, I believe, who, uh, among other things, had to use an iron lung on a regular basis, uh, which necessitated 
the the university will at some point with you know with his advocacy and, and the support of many other people uh, of trying to figure out how they could uh, house him as a student it's not as simple as getting into the dorms or anything like that and so really it, it started there as this way of, of of getting these students into school getting students to be more active and then it, it kind of grew from there as a, a grassroots movement where people with disabilities were supporting one another, they were identifying resources uh, for one another. Now, uh, and, and back then as well, uh, identifying people who were personal care assistants or aides for individuals with disabilities uh, was, was a difficult thing to do, and it still is. And so folks could share resources and things of that nature. And, and that's really, I think, where it started. Uh, you have to think about some of the things that are, are key to independent living are, again, that freedom of choice. Uh, but it's also, it's about peer support. It's about us, uh, you know, Centers for Independent Living are organizations that are made up of a majority of people with disabilities. My, our staff here in Ann Arbor um, in our, for our three counties is about 80% 80, 80 of the folks we have on staff identify as having a disability. And uh, about the same for our board of directors as well. And, and that piece is really important in that while each disability is different, each disability experience is different, there are just so many things that we can share with one another as we learn and grow together. Um, so you mentioned curb cuts. What exactly are curb cuts? <laughs> That's a great question. And I probably will uh, say some other lingo and things as we talk today. So just please feel free to, to call me out on that and I'll try to keep it to a minimum. Um, a curb cut is uh, when you're looking at a sidewalk, you're going down the sidewalk and you're going to cross the street. The curb cut is going to be that section of the sidewalk that's been uh, turned into a ramp or has become shallow so that it meets the road. So when you're thinking about, you know, 40 or 50 years ago, sidewalks ended with steps. Um, my, so myself as a wheelchair user either needed to figure out how to bump up onto uh, the sidewalk or cross the road safely or I needed assistance doing that. Um, and, and steps in general and those kinds of, there, there are all these barriers in our communities uh, when we're looking at disability. There's physical barriers and there's attitudinal barriers that I think prevent people from fully realizing and, and becoming who it is that they wanna be and accessing our communities. And so uh, a curb cut is just an example of a way of uh, creating greater uh, access and inclusiveness in our community for people with disabilities. What does independence, like you said, like personal freedom, mean to the people with these disabilities? Yeah, so so I definitely don't want to think of independence as uh, me doing everything for myself, uh, but it is about me making decisions for myself. It is about me having choice, whether that's the choice to succeed or the choice to fail, uh, and the opportunity to do those things. Um, a better way of sometimes when I look at independence as far as, as what I think about it as is looking at interdependence. And it's, it's about how we're all connected on so many different levels and how we support one another and how we can support one another uh, to grow as individuals, to uh, be contributing members of our communities, of society, and how we can all advance and move forward together. So independence, though, is, is it's just it's a philosophy. It's a way of living. It's a way of thinking about who we are and, and asserting uh, control and ownership of our lives, uh, which is unfortunately something I think uh, 
many people with disabilities do continue to experience, but many, many more experienced uh, in previous generations. And when we were watching the documentary Crib Camp, um, we were super surprised to learn that a lot of the things we have today, like the facilities and the schools and the programs that are for disabled people, and like what you mentioned, the curb, like cut, um, they, they've been introduced fairly recently. So is independent living still an ongoing movement? Um, what's the current agenda like? Yeah, I, I would say independent living is still an ongoing movement. Um, we have made a lot of advances in the last 40 or 50 years. Um, the Americans with Disabilities Act has, I think, helped bring us along uh, along the way in a lot of different advances, but there's still a lot of a lot of work to do. Uh, so there, the independent uh, living movement is still in existence. It is still moving forward. Uh, there are centers for independent living in every state in the country. There are uh, there are 15 of us technically here in Michigan. Uh, so there are many many of us continuing forward. Uh, you know, I think alongside and I think together in some cases as well, we have, um, you know, we see a lot of work being done more towards uh, justice and the use of, of justice. And I think disability justice um, is is kind of the same as the independent living movement in some cases, but also in some cases, it's very, very different in terms of uh, how people are identifying themselves, uh, what sorts of issues people are are fighting for, how agendas are being advanced and those kinds of things. And then you ask uh, kind of what is the agenda these days? And I, I guess uh, the agenda is, is still full inclusion of people with disabilities in our community. And uh, that honestly is a very broad statement, but uh, there's a lot of work to do. Um, there have been laws passed. There have uh, been things put into place to, I think, improve our lives. Um, but that, you know, that's kind of where we, where we need to start from uh, is kind of a law that supports something, uh, a law that is telling people they need to have accessible uh, buildings or businesses or schools or homes. Um, and, and that's that's the place to start. And so from there, we really need to keep moving forward, you know, informing people about disability and people with disabilities, uh, you know, talking about attitudes, uh, talking about attitudinal barriers. Uh, and honestly, there there are just so many issues right now that I, I could probably list half a dozen uh, in terms of things that are really affecting people with disabilities these days. Uh, two years ago, when uh, when COVID became a, a pandemic, uh, there was a lot of concern uh, from people with disabilities about how uh, medical rationing could potentially uh, affect their lives and in some cases possibly uh, cause their deaths. Uh, and so there is still, I think, a lot of work uh, that's being done with advocacy, with education, uh, with awareness, and um, you know, with, with guiding people with disabilities that needs to inform the medical community. Um, because unfortunately, uh, you know, hard decisions do get made, and but we don't want those those biases that we all have implicitly to necessarily affect somebody's life. Uh, so medical rationing is something that is still a concern. I would say it's it's not as big of a topic as it was two years ago, but still is. You know, there are other things I would say along those same lines right now that people with disabilities are concerned about. Um, you may all have heard about uh, the changes to auto no-fault laws here in Michigan in the last couple of years. Uh, unfortunately, the changes to those laws have affected 
a number of people with disabilities who acquired their disabilities um, through car accidents and things. Uh, in some cases, uh, it's ending some care that they were receiving. And in other cases, it's doing as much as um, forcing them into nursing facilities where they might've been living independently in the community before. So we have you know, those kinds of things that are going on right now. Uh, there's a lot of work that's being done around identifying and creating greater resources for personal care assistance so that people with disabilities have the support they need for their activi activities of daily living, uh, but that also will allow them to work independently in the community, to volunteer independently in the community, and simply to live. And then looking at some other things, uh, we could talk about uh, schools, and there's been a lot of changes over the years with uh, students with disabilities, integrating them into classrooms. There's a lot of work around you know, bringing more people with disabilities into the workforce. I think there's going to be a lot of information and data coming out in the not too distant future. Uh, just talking about people with disabilities in the lives they lead. Unfortunately, uh, far too many people with disabilities uh, live uh, an impoverished life. Uh, they might not be able to work, so they're living on disability benefits, which, which you know, that may only give you $1,000 or $1,200 a month to live on. And as you can imagine, that's, that, that's barely enough to maybe subsist, much less be able to thrive. Um, and then there are also other things that we have to educate people with on, um, such as what will happen to those kinds of benefits if they are to go back to work. Uh, a huge barrier for people with disabilities to go back to work is figuring out insurance medical benefits. Um, so you mentioned that one of the biggest goals is like helping them getting more included in the community. Could you could you elaborate more on that? So again, I, I guess I go back to thinking about how how the world was before any one of us was was even born yet. Um, people with disabilities used to be put into large institutions. Not everybody, but many people with disabilities lived in our large institutions, completely segregated from the rest of the community. Um, so when I talk about bringing people in, people with disabilities into the community, it's um, in some cases it's their physical presence in the community, living in homes or apartments or uh, housing or what have you, that is uh, along with with everybody else who's a part of our community. So it's it's that physical presence, um, but also it is you know having a disability voice at the table when we're looking at our policies, when we're looking at making changes and um, you know, whether it's laws or we're creating new parks or things like that, having that disability voice present, having us accounted for, you know, it is, it's also people with disabilities being able to live, work, and play in those communities. So having employment um, that is uh, gainful and that is fulfilling, having uh, lives that are fulfilling for folks with disabilities, they're able to participate in concerts or uh, go to plays or engage with other people uh, in, in a variety of different ways uh, for social and recreational uh, benefits. And what can members of the community like me or Zachary do to like be more inclusive? No, I, th I think it starts with, with being mindful of the disability community, I think, oh. and, and, just, and, and also mindful of the fact that uh, disability is a, a very broad term for a variety of folks who have very different experiences. 
Um, if you were to meet me in person, I have a physical disability, which is very apparent. I'm in a wheelchair. Um, but there are many people with hidden disabilities. And so to be mindful of those, that there are many different people experiencing things in this world. Um, and, and just trying to be thoughtful of those things and, uh, you know, working to engage uh, individuals with disabilities in whatever it is that you're doing. Uh, figure out ways to be creative if you're trying to have a group of friends go do something. Um, and you might not think somebody with a disability uh, can or cannot do that. Um, and, and recognize too that we're just like anybody else, we're people. And uh, oftentimes we may have had some experiences you wouldn't expect that we've had. And we know how to, to, to get around some of these barriers that we live with every, every single day. Um, you know, we live in a community that, that physically and attitudinally is not built for us. And so much of our time is spent uh, figuring out how to adapt. So I think that's, that's probably the place to start. And I think as you probably saw with Crip Camp, that kind of thing can be done in that, that camp setting, which was, you know, people with and without disabilities together, having a good time, growing, learning together. Uh, and, and then as, uh, you know, things went forward and they talked about Judy Human and the work that she's done over the years, it, it's recognizing that in, in order for us to make change, in order for us to advocate uh, for, for change, that it takes all of us. It's not just folks with disabilities doing that. Um, you know, when they were having those sit-ins, there were uh, churches, Black Panthers, other groups who were working with them to support them during those sit-ins. And, um, you know, not that we're necessarily doing that right at this very moment, but I, I think we're, we're, we need to make sure that that is uh, relevant, that people understand that. And then from my own perspective as a person with disability, I also need to be mindful of where uh, race, religion, uh, gender identity, um, all of those other um, identifiers that somebody might have that makes up who they are um, intersect with disability. And, and so I have some responsibility as a person with a disability as well to be more inclusive, um, recognizing that as a white cisgender male, that while I have a disability, and maybe have lost some privilege there, I still do experience other privilege um, that many, many people do not. Um, so you're mentioning about like being mindful. So what is the right amount of assistance that you can give to someone without them feeling that they're incapable? Sure, well, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. Um, it's dependent on the person. And so uh, it, you know, it's, it's about having a conversation with somebody. If you see a, a if, you, if you were to see me uh, trying to go up a hill uh, in my wheelchair, uh, instead of coming up right behind me and starting to push me up that hill, it's it's asking me if I need assistance. It's asking you, me what you can do, and you know I'll let you know. Um, so it, it's 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 really honestly it's just about asking folks. It's about engaging with them and not making assumptions uh, that um, they need help even. Are there any labels that people, you know, like put onto dis disabled people that make them feel uncomfortable? Um, you know, again, that's going to be, I think, a personal, um, a, a personal thing. Um, I would say that uh, the way I was brought up in the in, as during my work with the Independent Living, the Center for Independent Living here in Ann Arbor, um, people first language, or what we call people first language, was a was and is um, a big piece of who we are. And that's, um, I'm a person with a disability. I'm not, my disability doesn't come first. Uh, 
And um, I think that that's always a very safe way to identify people if we're, we're talking about language. I will say that um, in more recent years, younger younger folks, probably folks your age and a little bit older, um, are, have gone back to um, what we call disability first language. Because again, we're looking at disability as not something to be ashamed of. It's just a part of who we are and it's an important part of who we are. Uh, so those that's kind of the, the broad language uh, piece that I always talk about. And there's some push and pull there in terms of, of what um, folks prefer to be identified as. Um, and then there are even uh, different ways for folks who might identify uh, in the disability community as deaf. Um, they're not a person who is deaf, they're deaf, that's who they are. Um, uh, many, many people in the, uh, who identify as um, as autistic are autistic. They're not, uh, they're not a person with autism. And so um, there definitely is a wide variety of language use um, that can be appropriate and you just kind of have to learn about it. I think, you know, at least from my perspective, uh, I don't expect everybody to know the right things to say and the wrong things to say at any given time if they're just learning. And, and so I'm happy to support folks in um, learning more about that. As far as things not to say, um, you know, I, I know there's been a lot of work over the years uh, with the R word and um, erasing that from our, our everyday life. Uh, but there are still many other words that individuals um, might use on a regular basis that, um, that are going to be offensive to people. Dumb, idiot, you know, stupid, crazy, those kinds of things. Um, so I think it's, it's about being very, it's about understanding that, that many of these terms that we use and that seem like everyday things that we say amongst our friends and, and whatnot have, uh, have a history, have an origin that might be related to uh, an individual's disability or group of individuals' disabilities. You know, uh, handicapped is another one that I personally don't care for. Uh, when you think about the, the origins of the word handicapped, it's hand and cap. So it's folks who were begging, um, you know, people that they're thought of as people who are begging, they can't earn their own keep, they're, um, they're not able to do anything. Um, I also don't care for uh, the term uh, confined to a wheelchair. I, I don't know why necessarily. I, I can't tell you why exactly I don't care for it, but I, I guess it probably... A wheelchair is a device that I use to get around easily. Uh, I'm not confined to it. I'm not stuck in it all day. It's not anything that's that's limiting me. Um, so when I do see that word or that term, I, it does bother me a little bit. Um, but I think I think I've kind of covered a variety of different uh, language-related questions that you might have or uh, topics that do come up. And you were talking about how like a lot of people can have like I guess hidden disabilities that you can't really see on the surface. So what's the spectrum of disability really like? Like what kind of conditions are usually considered disabilities? <laughs> yeah, that's a, a tough question. Um, I think it can be looked at in a few different ways. Uh, there's probably the more uh, medical or scientific definition, which is really going to look at um, what sort of factors in one's life is, is uh, limiting their acti activities of daily life. For me, when I think about disability and the spectrum of disability, um, I'm not interested necessarily in a diagnosis so much as 
whether or not somebody identifies as a person with a disability. That's, that's their choice. Um, there, there's no shame in identifying as a person with a disability. Um, you know, I think just like any other uh, piece of who I am, it's, it's something to be valued and, and loved and cherished. And so um, when I think about people who are identifying as individuals with disabilities, that's, that's the spectrum. And, and it really can run quite a, a wide range. When we're looking at the Americans with Disabilities Act, yes, there are specifiers there. Um, there might be things on there that are considered disability or not considered disability. Um, but it, it really is a whole wide range of things, whether it's a learning disability, a physical disability, uh, a mental health condition, any, there, there are so many different things and it's, it's such a broad community. Um, as I mentioned before, there are many disabilities that you're not going to be able to see. Um, somebody with po uh, post-traumatic stress disorder is, in my mind, is a person with a disability. Uh, somebody with type 1 diabetes is, is a person with a disability. You may not see those things. Individuals who have a variety of different mental health conditions are people with disabilities, and you don't see those necessarily. Um, you know, autism we brought up earlier. Uh, some folks will consider that a disability. Some folks will not. But uh, that's not something you necessarily can, can see at all times. Uh, depression and, and severe depression is also one that, uh, you know, folks like that, I, I would consider that a disability. And we definitely don't see all of that all of the time. Could you tell us more about the Center of Independent Living in Ann Arbor here? Yeah, so uh, we were founded in 1976. Uh, that We were the first Center for Independent Living here in Michigan. And uh, it's, it's been told to me a couple different ways, but I think either the fourth or the fifth Center for Independent Living founded in the country. We provide a variety of different resources for people with disabilities, as well as opportunities to really create community and those peer supports. Um, so I, I will say that, um, again, we're organizations made up of people with disabilities. Uh, we're also required to provide what we call our five core services, which I'll, I can cover real quick. Uh, there's information and referral, which is simply connecting folks to resources in the community. Um, you know, so for example, an individual might call 211 looking for housing, but somebody might call us because they're looking for affordable, accessible housing. There's peer support, which we've talked about a little bit. Uh, that can be anything from a formal peer mentor match, like you might think of with big brothers, big sisters. Uh, but oftentimes it's just creating social activities where peers come together and are able to recreate together and share their stories and share their resources with one another. Uh, so we have, you know, a variety of different recreational activities that we provide, art classes, things like that. Um, we've also uh, partnered with uh, University of Michigan Adaptive Athletics, and we have our own gym space that is uh, accessible gym equipment for folks with disabilities in the community to use, or at least it will be once we're fully opened back up to the public here, hopefully in the next couple of months. Independent living skill development is another one of our core services. That can be anything from uh, helping an individual learn how to schedule their week or plan out their week. Uh, but it's also learning again about uh, employment. I keep bringing up, but uh, learning about employment readiness, soft skills development, um, you know, learning how one acts in a work environment versus the home environment, those kinds of things. There's advocacy, which can be both on a systems level, 
So that might be advocating for, um, you know, improved transportation in our community or improved accessible housing in our community. But it also can be uh, educating people with disabilities how to advocate for themselves. And, and that is a lot of what we do as well as making sure that folks learn how to do these things versus um, us or somebody else doing it for them. And then the, the fifth is what we call community transition. And that there's two parts to that. Uh, one is uh, one of our programs that we have, uh, we work with individuals with disabilities currently living in nursing facilities. And um, if they're eligible, we can assist them in moving back out into the community and help set them up so that they have the supports they need to live independently in the community and no longer in that nursing facility. Uh, the other piece of community transition is helping youth with disabilities make that transition from high school to whatever the next steps in their life are. I guess that transition to adulthood, you could say. Uh, that might be, you know, having a better understanding of post-secondary options. It might be finding more about work. Uh, it also might just be figuring out who your supports are in the community, what natural supports that you have so that you can continue to live in the community independently. I, I definitely think there are other organizations out there that are doing great work on behalf of the disability community as well. Association for Community Advocacy, uh, the National Alliance for Mental Illness. Uh, there, there's honestly, there's more than I can name, United Cerebral Palsy, March of Dimes. There's, there's a lot of groups out there that are supporting folks with disabilities. I think in some ways we are kind of unique in that um, you know, we're required to be made up of people with disabilities. So we're of the community as well as uh, alongside the, the community. And are these services that you provide and that you and others provide, are they only for disabled people or like are there family and friends involved as well? Yeah, no, that, thank you. Um, it, I would say it's, it is for family and friends as well. Um, so we definitely do receive um, requests, um, uh, folks reaching out to us who are friends, family members, supporters of people with disabilities and they're trying to assist them. Uh, we do um, allow our programming to be as inclusive as possible. We're not trying to create uh, an art class necessarily that is just people with disabilities and separate from the whole community. Uh, we just want to make sure that that space that we are creating um, is, is inclusive of people with disabilities. Uh, there, and then I would say just lastly, there are certain things I think we probably cannot necessarily do um, for somebody without a disability, and that starts to relate more towards how we receive our funding, um, how we receive federal and state funding, and who that money can be used uh, with and on behalf of. So, like, is the service that you like give out to the people with the disabilities are they sponsored by the government? Um, yes and no. Uh, so, centers for independent living do receive a variety of different uh, funding resources. Um, my particular Center for Independent Living and, and all of them here in Michigan receive federal funds directly from the government as well as state funds. In addition, uh, we have we, we all do our own fundraising, grant writing, uh, fee-for-service work, and look at other opportunities for, for developing funds. So our, the, the, state and the, the state funding that we receive, the federal funding that we receive is typically... Uh, dedicated to people with disabilities, and, and that's really what they want to see the funding used for. Uh, so, for example, 
uh, if I'm help, if I'm working with somebody on employment, I really can't work with an individual without a disability one-on-one um, to help them find employment. Whereas I would do that work with an individual with a disability. But that's not to say that we couldn't have workshops and, and when we have had workshops and, and educational opportunities in the past that were open to the public. Uh, so we definitely do try to make our, our own programming inclusive. We don't want to make our own programming segregated. Um, and, and so we do try to create those opportunities as best as we can, but we just have to be mindful that uh, we're, we're using taxpayer funds in the way that they're intended. And you've mentioned a couple of times that disability has such a large range. So how do you develop a plan to meet each individual's needs? Yeah, um, so what we we are what I call or, or what is called consumer driven. Uh, so the individuals that we're working with have an opportunity to create a plan for themselves. And we can sit down and do some goal setting, uh, identify those areas where maybe they're looking for assistance, they're looking for growth, or they have a goal that they want to achieve. And we personalize those plans to each of those individuals, and then figure out how it is that we can work with them or who it is in the community that we can connect them to, to make sure that they're able to achieve those goals. Um, so we did some research and we found that Ann Arbor's population was around 124,000 people. And then around 4.7% of that population were people who were like living with some sort of disability. And then that means uh, there should be around like 5,000 people here in Ann Arbor with some disability. How many of those people are really in the center with you guys? I would say we, we tend to work with people with disabilities who uh, have more barriers than others, have greater need than, than others. So um, if, you know, if, if I'm gainfully employed or I have stable income, if I have stable housing, um, if I have fr- circles of friends and natural supports, I may not necessarily need the services of the CIL. That's not to say I wouldn't participate in something, um, but an individual is much more likely, I think, to work with us if they're trying to uh, become employable, if they are looking for, for stable housing, if uh, they don't have supports and they're looking for new friends and, and new people to connect with. So I, I definitely think the individuals that we work with tend to be lower income um, and they tend to have other uh, concerns going on in their lives that uh, they need assistance with or would like assistance with or would like to be able to figure out uh, how to overcome and achieve their goals. And then how has um, this independent living organization changed lives here in another? Well, I think in some cases, it, it, you know, sometimes the, the smallest kind of resource can really help to change somebody's life in, in, a, in a whole variety of different ways. So I think we do do that. Um, but I think also for many people with disabilities over the years, uh, it has been opportunities to create a community for themselves where they didn't know how else to do that. Um, I think, you know, over time, it's been increasingly difficult for, for anybody with or without a disability to identify communities for themselves, to have social connections. And uh, the CIL is another opportunity for people with disabilities, at least, uh, to to create some of those connections in the community and, and to be present. And, uh, you know, it's, we are an organization who I think is, has helped people find jobs, who has helped people start small businesses, uh, who's helped people to go on to college and graduate. 
so there's, you know, I think the ways that we've, we've assisted the community have been numerous. And would you mind telling us a little more about yourself? Um, I know that you're in a wheelchair and only if you're comfortable, would you mind telling us how that happened? Sure. Uh, so I was born with a disability called spina bifida. And I know on one of your previous podcasts, uh, you had a whole story about that. So I, I thought that was, uh, I, th I thought that was kind of appropriate. Um, so yes, I, I was born with spina bifida. Um, I uh, grew up in a few different places. Uh, my family moved around a little bit. I mostly grew up uh, in the south suburbs of Chicago. And um, I ended up not coming out here until Ann Arbor until after I graduated college. Um, you know, my disability primarily affects uh, my ability to walk. I definitely have some other um, things that I have to deal with as a result of my disability. Uh, I also would say that I'm somebody who deals with depression on a regular basis. And that's something that, um, you know, I, I acknowledge and I have to work with every day. So that's, that's probably the other thing that I would identify as, as part of my disabilities or one of my disabilities. Um, I actually, uh, you know, I was mainstreamed through, uh, through school from kindergarten all the way through, uh, through the end of high school. And so I really did not have a lot of interactions with other people with disabilities like myself and uh, was not really even familiar with uh, the independent living movement and uh, the work that had been done um, you know, to support the civil rights of people with disabilities. Uh, you know, and even in the early 90s with the passing of the Americans with Disabilities Act, I knew what it was, but I didn't know what it took to get to that point. And uh, it just so happened that when I was living at, when I had moved back home um, or back to Ann Arbor, which my parents lived in at the time, uh, I was, I, I used to get my hair cut across the, or across the way from where the Center for Independent Living was. And, and that was honestly the first time I found out about a Center for Independent Living was uh, when I got my hair cut, I saw their sign and I started to volunteer for them. And I've been working at the center now for about 15 years in a variety of different capacities in the last couple of years as executive director. So it's, it's been a, a kind of weird, long, windy journey. I knew when I left school that I, I wanted to work in this this non-profit profit field. I just didn't know what or how or, um, and luckily I think some things came together for me and, and here I am today. Are there any challenges or rewards as being a director of this Center of Independent Living? <laughs> um, you know, I, you know, I, I think as, as far as reward, rewards go, um, I, I work with a great team of people. I work with, with great people who, who do amazing work every single day. And I do consider that a privilege to be able to be with those people on a regular basis and, and do what I can to support them. Um, you know, I, I do really enjoy connecting with folks in the community and, and being able to know that I'm doing something that does have, you know, some intrinsic value to me that's important. I would say, you know, as far as challenges go, it's uh, it, an executive director's job, I don't think is, is e easy in any situation. There's a lot of different things that we have to juggle, uh, you know, whether it's, it's hiring folks and making sure that uh, the team is working together effectively, or it's uh, writing reports and identifying data. You all mentioned some data earlier that you were talking about. Um, you know, those are important things that we also have to be mindful of the number of folks who are affected by different things. 
it's it's making connections out in the community. It's it's finding the funding to grow our work because I don't think, you know, for for even where we are budget wise, uh, we still have much further to go to be able to support more people with disabilities. And so there's a lot of different things going on at any one time. Uh, the last couple of years have been uh, challenging for sure. Uh, I don't know if they're they're challenging uh, more or less than than other years because I just haven't been doing the executive director piece for so long. But um, I can say it's it's been a strange couple of years. We're looking at in 2026 will be the 50th anniversary of the CIL here in Ann Arbor. So um, that that is no small achievement, I would say, and that's something that's really exciting. Uh, but as I mentioned, I think, you know, as far as what we're doing, we're just continuing to expand the work that we do uh, to do more outreach, to do more educational opportunities, to do more advocacy work. Uh, it, it really is about volume in a lot of ways, but also to continue to uh, be effective in what we do. And that's what I think about on a regular basis. Thank you for being on here and talking with us. No, of course. Yeah. I was happy to do it. I really appreciate the invitation to be on here. And I, I think you guys have done some great work with uh, the other podcasts you've done. And I look forward to seeing what comes of this. If you're interested in the independent living movement and want to know more about its history, Mr. Gossett recommended a documentary, Crip Camp, A Disability Revolution, that he thought would be a good introduction of this topic. It helped us a lot with our research preceding this interview. You can easily find it on Netflix or YouTube, and we will also leave the link in the description of this episode. Thank you so much for listening, and see you next time. So darling, darling, stand by me. Oh, stand by me. Oh, stand. Stand by me. Stand by me. It's the sky that we look upon. Tumble and fall, or the mountain should crumble to the sea. I won't cry, I won't cry, no, I won't shed a tear just as long as you stand, stand by me.